I'm Kimberly Amici. Welcome to the Build Your Best Family podcast. This is a practical show to help you imagine, plan, and build your best family. We believe that the secret to having a happy family is not being perfect, but having purpose. Each week, I'll be sharing with you lessons I've learned and conversations I've had that will help you become who you want to be together. Our ability to live according to our religious beliefs has been an essential part of our country from the beginning. James Madison described it as an unalienable right. The Declaration of Independence recognizes these rights as endowed by our Creator. In recent years, government actions have encroached upon these religious freedoms. So now more than ever, it is important to know what our religious freedoms are and not rely on hearsay and sound bites to inform us. Religious freedom protects people's right to live, speak, and act according to their beliefs peacefully and publicly. Religious freedom benefits everyone. It treats all people equally, Christians, Jews, Muslims, agnostics, and atheists. Today's guest, Judge Roy Sparkman, is a subject matter expert on religious freedoms. Serving Texans as a trial lawyer for more than two decades and a district judge for more than eight years, he is passionate about educating religious leaders about the ways in which their liberties are already being infringed upon and equipping them to defend their positions and their faith. He'll be talking with us about his new fiction book, A Pastor's Pit, and share with us the religious freedoms that our students, our kids, have in school but may not be aware of, and how we as parents can take a stand in our local community for religious freedoms. Before you listen to our conversation, though, I wanted to quickly tell you about a resource that I created to help you reduce the stress and overwhelm that we so often feel at this time of year. It's called the One Word for the Holiday Season Worksheet. It's a step-by-step guide that will help you set an intention for the next few weeks so that you can say yes to the things that matter and no to the things that don't. No more having so much on your plate that you can't enjoy family time this holiday season. Head over to buildyourbestfamily.com to get your free copy. Fantastic to have you on the podcast today. Well, thank you, Kimberly. I appreciate you having me and uh, the ministry that you're involved in and how you're growing where God has planted you right now. So a question that we ask all of our guests is, what is your family known for? Well, that is an interesting question. I almost think you ought to be asking somebody else rather than me. <laughs> I don't want somebody else to be thinking I might be trying to brag about myself, but let me uh, say what I would hope that people might say about our family. One is that we are serious about honoring the Lord in what we do, what we say, where we go, and and how we handle things. I, I'm a very blessed guy and in many, many ways, but I, I would hope that people would say that we also serve the Lord, that we are active in our community, and that our family is very, very important to us. We try to demonstrate hospitality and um, generosity when we can. And, uh, you know, for example, we, again, are blessed and we were at the lake house over Labor Day and we have a swimming pool at our house here in Waco. And on Saturday, we had one group of friends that wanted to come swim, Sunday, another group, and Monday, another group that came swimming at our house while we weren't here. So we we would like to think people would view us as as being generous with the things that God has blessed us with. I would probably say that, I mean, I'm blessed with my kids. And so I think people would would probably say that our kids. We have been very blessed in the area of our kids. I've had three kids, two of the three are on church staff in ministry. The third one is also active in her Christian walk and in Christian ministry. And I would say probably over the last number, probably 30 plus years, my wife and I have been very active in nearly wed and newlywed ministry. And that's kind of the 
the ministry passion that we have is trying to help young married couples and pre-married couples have the right biblical foundation so that hopefully their marriages will last. So I guess those would be some of the things that people might say about us. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's wonderful. I mean, geez. I mean, if we had a pool, I would have having people over all the time, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> well, we have to have an open gate policy. Just call us and text us when you're coming. We're usually pretty easy about that. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. I love that. Okay, so you've recently written a book called A Pastor's Pit, and it's a work of fiction, and you lean heavily on your actual experiences that you've had. So before we dive into what the book is about, tell us about your background and the firsthand experiences you've had with the legalities of religious freedoms. Probably my first one was that I was contacted by the local Right to Life group and there was a nurse that was working in a local hospital and a doctor that was performing abortions. She she did not want to participate in that, but the doctor would start it and tell her to finish it. Mm-hmm. And uh, she had religious convictions about that. And so I was able to help her find some, some law that was able to help her. They quit doing that and didn't make her do that any longer. That was probably my first introduction to religious liberty and people taking stands based upon their religious convictions. Mm-hmm. And then probably the second one that lit my my candle more was, was my pastor was going through the Bible and he was preaching about homosexuality. And it was called his attention that the librarian in the city public library had, had put two, two books like Heather Has Two Mommies that was pushing a, a lesbian agenda in front and center mm-hmm. for the kids to try to, to see and, and get. The pastor preached and said, you know, the city council ought to pass an ordinance saying that those books will be put behind the counter and, and not pushed it. Not, he's not trying to say get rid of them, but pushed it back where they're not pushed as an agenda. Mm-hmm. So the city council did that. And then an ACLU lawyer was hired to attack that city ordinance. My pastor was subpoenaed for both a deposition and then to be a witness in that trial. And I was the lawyer that accompanied him on both of those occasions. And that began to the process of me thinking about, well, this time he was just a witness. But what if next time they're really taking a shot at him directly instead of indirectly like this? Mm-hmm. And uh, then there have been. So, so that's probably my some of my personal experiences that, that got me thinking about it. Practice. Wow. So. This is really what piqued your interest in religious liberties. It is, and uh, you know, I, again, I I started looking at how religious liberty attacks had gone over the years, mm-hmm. and you know, they started so much in the schools to to ban. No, we can't have prayers in school. No, we can't have uh, Bibles passed out by the Gideons in school. No, we can't mm-hmm. have uh, religious Christmas services or, or whatever you'll call them activities. And then mm-hmm. they moved from the city, the school to the city, the county square. No, you can't put the 10 commandments in the courthouse. You can't have the nativity scene. And then it began to move to the businesses where mm-hmm. businesses, the government would try to say, no, you, your religious uh, views are not important. You still have to do this like Hobby Lobby and some of the others. Mm-hmm. And for me, the next logical progression was for them to go after our pastors directly and those ministers that were trying to preach truth from the Bible and mm-hmm. trying to, to give great uh, direction but based upon biblical instruction and not necessarily what the, the, the common thought of the day might be. And so uh, that began to grow on me a little bit. And then, as I said, I've got two kids that are in the ministry, and I began to think that, you know, in their days of ministry, it won't surprise me if they don't face this 
issue of can I say what the Bible says without being attacked, even criminally attacked, Mm -hmm. where they could say that's religious hate speech. And so the and, and then after that, I mean, I kind of I really wrote the book, the bulk of the book before the pandemic. But the pandemic has kind of put this on steroids a little bit, as you've yeah. as you've seen the attacks on churches and pastors and other people. And in Canada, of course, the pastor was was imprisoned because he wouldn't shut his, his uh, church down. So all of those kinds of things built to the point of where I thought, you know, I, I wanted to write a book in a way that would be not a, a legal thesis or something. You know, when we hear religious liberty, we think, okay, I religiously, uh, but I wanted it to be in a story form that maybe people could understand a little better how easily this could occur and some of the consequences uh, that, that could happen as a result of that. And so I took, I took the religious, I took the hate speech statute from Oregon Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of us on its face would say, oh, we, don't, we should not have hate speech at all. And there's a principle about that that's good. But I inserted one word in there, religious uh, and religion. And so when you do that, the problem is there's no definition of what would be religious hate speech, nor is there instruction as to who would decide what constitutes religious hate speech. Mm-hmm. So I tried to format that in the book in a way that people could understand that, you know, do we really want our district attorneys and our judges to say, oh, your pastor can say this. No, your pastor can't say that. Mm. And so I, I tried to do it in a story format that maybe would be a little easier for people to understand and follow. Yeah. So a lot of our listeners have school-aged children. So could you give us an idea of three examples of religious freedoms that students have in school, but they perhaps are led to believe that they don't? Because I think like as you're talking, I'm thinking, okay, I hear religious liberties, but I'm not sure exactly what that means. So let's start off with our children. What what are the freedoms that they have that we may not think they don't? Yeah, I, and I think sometimes we get intimidated by either the media or by others in the public that would try to portray the message that you cannot do anything in school that has any religious connotation, and that's just mm-hmm. not the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is there are some things for, because of the establishment of religion clause in the Constitution that maybe our teachers, our principals, superintendents, others that are employed by a district can't do. But but we as individuals, particularly our students, have a, a pretty good range of things that they can do. For example, our students can pray in school. And I'm not talking about the oh Lord, help me with this test prayer. I'm talking about, you know, praying for their, their friends and praying for other people and other needs that they may have. They can at lunch and at free periods. They can, you know, for example, they can have a Bible study and they can have a prayer time. I mean, they can pull off to the side at lunch and have their group to death. If it's a study hall and the teacher permits and says, okay, y'all, it's a free time. You guys can do whatever you want to do. They can they can have a time where they can study their Bible or they can pray or talk about a devotion, that kind of thing. You can wear religious T-shirts. I mean, I think a lot of times people think that the school dress codes would prohibit that, mm-hmm. but as long as they're you know, like I want to put you on the cross like they put Jesus on the cross. That would be, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, if it was on the front said, Jesus loves me. And on the back, Jesus loves you, too. I mean, religious T-shirts you can wear, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there have been a couple of cases that that said that students at Christmas time. And again, these are all student initiated. I, I try to preface it by the teachers can't do it. The administrators can't do it. But if students initiated where they were distributed cards during Christmas time that said Jesus is the reason for the season. So they started passing them out, gave it to their friends, and and that was permissible. It's viewed as permissible. One thing that we have come up nearly every year 
is if there's a valedictorian or salutatorian Mm. that in their speech, they want to talk about their faith and what God means to them and how they wish that their friends would, you know, be believers and follow Christ or however they want to word Mm -hmm. it. Every year there's some administrators that, oh, no, you can't do that. Well, there are court cases that say as long as it's the, the student is selected randomly, like his valedictorian, salutatorian, something like that, and it's student initiated, they can do that. So yeah. we, we, we face that nearly every year. But those are just some examples that we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you would think that if a valedictorian or some student that was in a position of leadership wanted to share where they get their strength from, where they get their courage from, right. how they make decisions, you would think that that would be something you should be able to share. No matter no matter where it comes from, I want to hear. And I think our children want to hear, you know, where, how can I achieve what you achieve? Yeah, that, that's who they are. And, and if that's mm-hmm. part of what's made them successful, and perhaps from that person's perspective can help others be successful. Why can they not share that? And again, there's Supreme Court cases. The Department of Education has said it's permissible. But nearly every year we have some administrator that wants to take a stand and say, no, you can't do that. But that is very permissible and they can do that. So I think we ought to encourage our students and our kids in those areas, some of those things like what we've outlined. And as long as it's initiated by the students, there's a lot of latitude that we think they don't have. And sometimes a administrator might try to discourage it and say, oh, I can't permit that because it's separation of the church and state. And but at the same time, there are organizations that are nonprofits that if you kind of Google them, say organizations that help deal with religious liberty issues. I know Kelly Shackelford has one in Texas and there are a number of others that do it that can provide guidance of what you can and can't do. And if a, if a principal or administrator says, tries to correct them and say, no, you can't do that. If you contact one of those organizations, they'll write a letter for you and you don't have to pay for it. So there are some groups like that that will help you know what you can do and help you if you hit by some teacher or administrator saying, no, you can't do that. Yeah. Do you think that a majority of people just don't really understand that that is permissible? Do you think we're, we're trying to make decisions based on sound bites instead of really understanding what our liberties are? I'm talking about like anybody that would come against the expression of religion. You know, I think there are probably a number of things that come into that. I think there Mm -hmm. are some people that are just hostile to faith. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think they just start with that perspective of being hostile to that for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Then I think there are some people that are kind of unsure of what the lines are. And so that in in the interest of being sure I don't do anything wrong, we're going to go to the extreme. And then I think there are some people that might want to express it, but they don't want to be, you know, the nail that's sticking up that the hammer hits down. You know, they don't want to necessarily call attention to themselves. And then I think there's also growing what I would say that the lines between those that are willing to stand and speak and those that are not willing to stand and speak. You know, and I, mm-hmm. I think that those lines are becoming clearer. So I think mm-hmm. there's a common factors. I, I do think that there have been a lot of there's been a lot of time period where people didn't really know and didn't understand what they could and could not do. And what happens in in terms of the media and the publicity, what you hear are you can't do this and you can't do that. And so I think people begin to accept there's a whole lot more can't do's and I don't know what the can do's are. And so mm, yeah. I think that we don't publicize a lot of times the things that kids can do, but you hear a lot of publicity on what they can't do. Right. And so I think we begin to to get the idea and the impression that, well, I guess, no, we can't do anything in school that has religious connotations to it. 
And I think that all of those factors have played into where we are today. Yeah. And I think that's important for parents and people to understand what they can do because you can hear media, you can hear a soundbite or you can hear, you know, those clickbait titles that want to tell you the story, but not the whole story. And so it really does benefit us to do a little bit more research, ask a little bit more questions and find out, can I really do this or can I really do this? And then understand what the implications are of that. Right. I think that's very important. And and I think, you know, one of the things I think is another, if you call it a silver lining on the pandemic, is that I think that the parents have become more involved in the education of their kids Mm. when they were in their home and they were having to go to classes by Zoom or online some way. The parents were able to hear more, able to see more, and they became more involved in, in what their kids were being taught and how they were being taught. Yeah. And so I think one of the things that we can do as parents is don't let don't slide back into the way we were before where we become uninvolved. And I don't mean uninvolved in, in such a harsh manner, but it's easy when you send your kids off to school to think yeah. that what happens in the school is going to be OK and it's going to be good. And as, like for me, I grew up in a school district that my teachers were Christians and they they said good things and set good examples. And they didn't try to teach me things that my parents disagreed with. Same thing for my kids. We were in a smaller community and mm-hmm. we felt very comfortable about that. And so I think it's easy for us to think that the way we had our education is the same way our kids are being educated. And that's not really the case today. There are so many examples now of mm-hmm. things that are happening in school that most of us would not want our kids to be taught. And so I think mm-hmm. the environment changed. So I would encourage parents to stay actively involved in learning what their kids are being taught. I mean, many of the schools still offer uh, the option of being able to attend some classes in, uh, remotely. And so sometimes it might be if you have a question, your, your child says something that creates a question, maybe you want to zoom in with them and, you know, say, mm-hmm. let's okay, you stay home. Let's let's do this by Zoom today so I can see what's going on. Being active as parents, I think we ought to we ought to continue that. Don't let that part of the pandemic slide. Yeah. Oh, 100%. I agree. And we we tend to want to trust the places that we're sending our kids. And it is interesting. I have older kids now. We've done what we can do to teach them our values and the things that we believe. And so as teenagers, they're a little bit more vocal with us and sharing what they don't think lines up with what we've taught them. And so they are sharing things with us. But when they're little, I don't think they knew to share things with us. Every once in a while, you might hear something. But yeah, asking lots of questions and just understand what they're learning and then, you know, sharing your values and your beliefs in, and in response. Yeah. 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 Training them, you know, talks, Bible talks about how we're to train them when they get up and when they walk and when they lie down. And, you know, we're supposed to be training and teaching them all the time. And and so I think, you know, being proactive is a really, really important thing for parents to do. And I know and I'm speaking as a former school board member, school board president of Texas, but, you know, there are things that parents can do to be involved in their school district mm-hmm. that can help. Them. For example, I know in Texas, the State Board of Education approves the textbooks that will be available to the districts. And then the districts approve a list of books that their teachers can use. In mm-hmm. our district, we had a, a committee that had parents as well as teachers that looked at the textbooks to be approved. So, And I think I would encourage people to look in your community and see if that option is available so that you can know what books are going to be approved in your school district and what those books are teaching. And if they're not offering that as an option, then go to your school board, go to the superintendent, encourage them to provide that to parents so that they can know what's going on in their classes. 
it's so easy to, again, just accept that and think that everybody's making a good, right decision. But I'm finding more and more, unfortunately, that that the educator's perspective and viewpoint may not line up with my viewpoint, and my perspective. Doesn't make yeah. them bad people, but I just I just want to be more actively involved in what my kids and grandkids are being taught. Yeah, for sure. So you've used fiction to share and and to make people aware of our religious liberties and make them aware of the tools we have and then the fight that we can fight. So without giving too much away, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about the story and how you depict the very real scenarios about religious liberties in this book and, and like, what's the plot and why should I pick it up? <laughs> All right. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to do that. You know, as I said, the dealings with my pastor, the lawyer for my pastor, when he was subpoenaed, provided a lot of the history and the background that motivated me from a legal perspective to do this. The The setting for the book is there is a pastor that goes to Oregon, a small community in Oregon, and he begins to preach. And, and it's a basic theme that many of us in the religious uh, world would say is very consistent with Scripture, that in order to be saved, you trust Christ. And that's the method by which you get to heaven. Mm-hmm. So he is preaching. He started saying, you know, he's trying to point out that I don't care what your religion is, if you're Baptist or Methodist or Muslim, as long as you don't trust Christ, you are going to hell and you're not going to heaven. Mm-hmm. Well, there was someone that picked that up from a, the Muslim perspective and said, he, the pastor, is now saying that we as Muslims are going to hell. And so that's hate speech. He's engaged in religious hate speech mm-hmm. by, by our religion. And then the plot develops that the district attorney hears that and sees the kind of the stirring in the community and st- decides to indict the pastor for hate speech and uh, religious hate speech. And the pastor has a high school buddy that is a Texas lawyer. Of course, a Texas lawyer, right? Of and course. <laughs> he calls his he calls his Texas lawyer buddy to come defend him in that criminal case where he is indicted. And then there is a trial. And ultimately, I, I take it through to the U.S. Supreme Court decision based mm-hmm. on religious liberty. And does the First Amendment that says we have religious liberty, does it withstand that statute uh, and the attack word of that statute? Mm-hmm. And um, so but but also one of the other things from the perspective of you talk about families, I think sometimes we clinically say, okay, yeah, that pastor, that happened to that pastor. But one of the, some of the other things that I tried to portray was, you know, if that happens, it doesn't just happen to the pastor, but he has a wife and he has some kids and it begins to implicate and have implications for them. And they begin to have issues because of what their dad has done. Suddenly their kids at school are being under attack because of, from other kids in school. They have kids that are in their church that then go to their high school and, and they get under attack. And so the, the ripple effect goes out. And, and I try to portray a little bit about what the impact of that could be. And then you have the the, the other ministerial alliance pastors and, and what's their position going to be? Are they going to stand with you? Or, or maybe are they going to say, oh, he sounded a little harsh. I don't know if I want to Get out there with that guy or not. I mean, so you, that's part of the plots that I try to develop so that people can see the implications and, and how it spreads out. There may may even be someone in the church that you might think does some things that you would hope someone in the church would not do. Right. As it relates to his pastor. But so so I try to put some twists in there, different kind of things of, of things that I could could imagine happening in that kind of a scenario to try to keep the, the plot flowing. 
Yeah. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah. I, I do love fiction and I, and I read a lot of nonfiction, but I think that something like this would be really interesting to read because I would probably learn a lot from it without feeling overwhelmed by the facts and the data and the, the precedents. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I, I tried to be pretty light on that. I, you know, I, I'm kind of like you from the standpoint, I, I've always read a lot of legal things, you mm-hmm. know, so, so my, re- my release was to read some thick, fiction so that I didn't have to really sit and focus on it, concentrate on it. And so I kind of like fiction. Not everybody does, but that's, I, I hoped that in that format that it would be a little bit more appealing and people could relate to it a little easier. Mm-hmm. So how can parents get involved or anybody really get involved when it comes to taking a stand against their religious freedoms being infringed upon? You know, that's, you know, again, I would encourage people to the parents to be proactive and not be passive in their approach with their kids. You know, I, I don't think people do that intentionally, thinking that they're not protective of their kids, mm-hmm. but we're taught to be respectful of our systems and uh, the adults in the system and that kind of thing. And so I think, again, sometimes we get almost intimidated into silence with our kids. And so I would say be proactive know what's being taught. If you, I mean, I think it's a fair thing to to look at the textbooks that your kids have. Uh, sometimes they're online now, so you may have to go online to look at your kids' books and, mm-hmm. and stay ahead of them a little bit to see what they're being taught. I think your kids, it sounds like you have been able to keep open door communication with your kids where, you know, a lot of times kids will come home from school and you say, well, well what'd you do at school today? Not much. Crickets, you know, and and pursuing and digging down a little bit deeper so that you be prepared for that. I think that having groups of parents that can do things proactively, whether it's getting on the curriculum committee to look at the school books to see what's being taught, attending board meetings. I mean, in Texas, we had a couple of board meetings a month. So if you had eight parents that were interested in it, they could, you know, one could attend over the next eight months. And so it wouldn't be burdensome to one particular person, but they could hear what's going on in terms of the school activity, the, if there's issues about curriculum, there's these issues about teachers, that kind of thing. You know, I would I would look and find out what your school district's policy is on parents being able to opt out of particular classes or particular programs. I know, again, when I was on the school board, we had a sex education program. And but we provided the parents the ability to opt out of that if they chose uh, to do that. Mm-hmm. There was there was recently a deal that for me as a parent would have scared me to death. I want to. It was in Orange County, California, and the Board of Education issued an opinion, and I want to read it to get the quote right. That said, "quote Parents who disagree with the instructional materials related to gender, gender identity, gender expression." and sexual orientation may not excuse their children from this instruction. I thought, man, as a parent, as a grandparent, as a school board member, that scares the daylights out of me to think that we would not be able to opt our kids out of it. So I would, I would again, be proactive in trying to look for some of those kinds of things. You can look some, some places, some States are more, liberal is the word I want to choose in allowing freedom of information requests to obtain things like maybe even down to the level of teachers' lesson plans that can be open and available for teachers to look at. I think that there can be encouraged people to run for the school board. You know, one of the things about education so far in this country, I mean, there's 
The federal government tries to impose certain programs and they try to tie funds to those programs. But for the most part, the states and the local school districts are given a lot of flexibility and freedom mm-hmm. with respect to education. So I, I would think we ought to look for opportunities to have to eat for either like you to run or for you, some of your friends and people that you know, to run for the school board and support them in that activity. Because a lot of decisions are being made for our kids in that context. You said talk about sensitive top topics. I mean, again, there are probably two that, you know, gender identity, racism, all of those are, are becoming very, very hot topics these days. Mm-hmm. And I could see how some teachers would begin to to work some of those topics in and so that your kids would be able to recognize when they're brought up and also then to to understand what am I supposed to do with that? You know what I think ultimately, I mean I felt very good about the kid the schools that my kids were in, but there are a lot of options today for parents that if it if you can't if you're trying to work through the system, the the principal teachers won't work with you. You can't have enough opportunity to see what's being taught. You can't have opportunity for input. And you see some of these things creeping in that you don't like. Then there are some other directions that I would consider going. For example, there are some great consortiums for homeschooling these days. There's some charter schools. There's some private schools. There, you know, even ultimately, you might need to move to another district. I mean, there are just a number of options that I mean, if I live in the school district that passed regulation in Orange County, my kids wouldn't be there five more minutes. I mean, I'd be out of there. And I I hate to say those kind of things, but I think, you know, we recognize that our kids are a gift from God and that one of the greatest influences I think we as parents can have is on our kids. And so I, I think we all have to take that very seriously, that responsible responsibility. We can't guarantee what our kids are going to be like. But while we're we have them in those tender growing up years, we I think have the responsibility to try be to be protective of them and to give them good guidance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, this was excellent. I appreciate you coming on and talking to us a little bit about this and giving us some information, making us aware of things we might not have been aware of, and and sharing your book with us. This has been incredible. Thank you, Kimberly. I, one last thought I might give is yeah. I think sometimes it would be easy to be discouraged because of some of the things that we see happening. And, you know, one of my verses is Psalm 46, 1 and 2, that says, uh, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. And one of the things that I've decided is that fear freezes and paralyzes, but hope engages and empowers us. Mm-hmm. So don't forget that God is hope and I can trust him, even with my kids, even as I raise my kids. So I, I think we should have hope and I think we should be hopeful and and not driven by fear and so much afraid that we are paralyzed. So uh, thank you for what you do in terms of trying to help build your best family and to encourage people to do that. I found that conversation to be incredibly interesting, and I just love the idea that I can learn so much from fiction. You can find Roy at judgeroysparkman.com. I'll link to this and where you can find his book, A Pastor's Pit, in the show notes. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. If so, I'd like to ask a favor. Can you head over to iTunes and leave a review? Besides sharing this episode with your friends, leaving a review is one of the most effective ways you can support us and help get the word out about the incredible resources we have to offer. I'm passionate about helping families thrive and your reviews help families find us. Remember, family culture is not about perfect. It's about purpose.